This is the President's Sunday School class, if you're visiting us. It was called the President's class from the beginning because it was Dr. Criswell's intention to reach CEOs of corporations in downtown Dallas, and uh, he knew that normally they wouldn't come to church, so he decided to start a class, especially for them, called the President's class. And he began to, the class began in the Dakota's bar room. Uh, figuring most CEOs would be more familiar with that situation than the church. And so that's how the class started. So now we have many people in the class who are not presidents. Praise the Lord. And we are now in Psalm 62. So we're going to look at Psalm 62 and we're going to look at the superscription. It doesn't give us a lot of information. The superscription is not your title in bold, but it's the uh, lighter writing, if you have this kind of a translation, it says to the chief musician, which means that this is a, uh, a song, and these are instructions, some sort of, in, this is a, the, the chief musician is to take these words and to turn it into a, a song. It says at the end, it's a psalm or a song of David, he's the composer, and then it says to Jeduthun, uh, and Jeduthun is uh, a person that we need to know about. But who in the world is Jeduthun? That's Thun, actually. Thun, Jeduthun. It's a hard word to pronounce for me. I had to look that up in the pronunciation guide. A lot of hard words in the Old Testament, but fortunately there are books that are called pronunciation guides. It lists all the Old Testament names and tells you how to pronounce them. And that's the only way I know how to do that. Because I was poorly educated in the public school system, and I never learned to read phonetically. And as a result of that, I cannot pronounce a lot of words. So I have to go to these pronunciation guides. So it's J, and actually the second syllable is D U D Y O O. How do you pronounce that? Dew, J Dew, Thun. Now, can you imagine saying that 20 times in a row? I can't say it once. So, look over at First uh, Chronicles chapter 16, and this is where Jeduthun... <laughs> I'm gonna, you know what I'm doing? We're calling him Jed for short. Okay? <laughs> so, we have Jed here. And this is the first time Jed's mentioned. And it's First Chronicles chapter 16. Now, we're not going to get a lot of information about him. We're going to learn something about him, but it's not going to tell us too much about his part in the psalm, but we're going to try to think this thing through a little bit and draw some logical conclusions. So, in chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, it says they brought, so they brought the Ark of God, that's the Ark of the Covenant, and set it in the midst of the tabernacle, the house of worship, that David had erected. So this is taking place under King David. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And then what it goes on, and it begins to tell you that in verse 4, that he appointed some Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, to praise the Lord God of Israel. And then you see Asaph mentioned. And Asaph is like a chief player in the tabernacle. He is a, uh, a songwriter. And then if you look down at verse 
37. Verse 37. Asaph is mentioned again, and here's what it says. And so he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. So uh, Asaph is a, uh, a Levite, a priest, who's ministering in the tabernacle on a daily basis, maybe offering sacrifices and lighting uh, incense and things like that. And it goes on to say, And Obed-Edom, with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jed. You see that? So there he is again. So he has some sons and Hosa. And look what he would look what they are. To be gatekeepers. Do you see that? So Jed has sons who are gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. And it goes on to tell some of the things that they did. And then down in verse 41 it says, And he man and Jed and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name, watch this. For what purpose? To give thanks to the Lord. So that's one of their jobs, is to thank God, to praise God, to pray to God. It's one of the jobs that Jed has and his sons have. Because of his because his mercy endures forever. And with them, Heman and Jed, let's look at this. The sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jed were gatekeepers. We see that again. So here we see, here's a man who's ministering in the tabernacle and he plays cymbals, it says. And he plays the trumpet, which is very interesting. Now look over at chapter 25. You're still in First Chronicles. <clears throat> And look at verse 1. 1 Chronicles 25, 1. Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service the sons, some sons of Asaph, of Heman, and Jeduthun, uh, Thun. Watch this. Who should prophesy? Prophesy with hearts. How in the world do you prophesy with a harp? Think about this. <clears throat> Who should prophesy with harps, string instruments, and cymbals? And the number of the skilled men performing the service was the sons of Asaph, and it goes on and on, of Jed in verse 3, the sons of Jed, mentions all of them, look at the end of verse 3, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise God. God. And it goes on and tells you how many of these people were involved in there in verse 7 and so on and so forth. So here we're seeing something. Now look over at 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Now we're going to move to 2 Chronicles. Okay. And this is just going to give us a little bit of background. I wish we could do this on every psalm, but some psalms we don't know what the background is because there's no superscription. So in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we see this in verse 1. And so all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. David is now dead. Solomon, his son, has taken over as king. And he builds a temple. David had the tabernacle. The tabernacle of David. This is the temple of Solomon. 
was finished and Solomon brought in things which his father David had dedicated the silver and the gold, all the furnishings he brought them in from the tabernacle put them in the house the new temple and he put them in the treasures of the house of God and then down verse 11, 11 it says this and it came to pass that when the priest came out of the most holy place for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping their divisions and the Levites who were singers and all those of Asaph and Heman and look Jed you see him he's mentioned again he has moved from one administration to the next and their sons with them stood at the east of the altar clothed in white linen having cymbals stringed instruments and harps and with them 120 priests, sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpets and the singers were as one. And this is the dedication service of the new temple. To make one sound to be heard in praising. In other words, there's a harmony there. There's no discord. They're all playing in it's one sound, like an orchestra, like a symphony. To be heard in praising the Lord. When they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For He is good, and His mercy endures forever. But the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. The power of God came down in some manifest way where you could actually sense it, feel it, see it, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So there is Jed. He's invited Joe. Good to have you back. I see Joe Karen over there. Welcome back. How are you feeling? Should have been praying for you today. Praising the Lord for you. Okay, let's look back at Psalm 62. So what we have here is we have this superscription and Jed's mentioned. Now what does Jed do and what does his sons do? Play harps, cymbals, blow trumpets, prophesy. So I am assuming that if he write, if David writes this song and he gives it to the chief musician to put it to music, somehow Jed is going to be involved in his sons, and guess what they're going to be doing? Accompanying the song with cymbals and trumpets and a lot of these things. So this is probably a song that has a lot of instruments, and uh, now what you need to do is you need to use your historical imagination. Because that's a lot of what reading the Bible is. You say, okay, now I know how things were done. So when I read this, I need to picture in my mind, well, how would this look? We know the early church, for example, ate meals in homes. Well, how would that look? And you can pretty much you know, reconstruct the events just using your brain that God has given you. So that's what I want to ask you to do. I'm not going to point it out, but I want you to think about that as you listen to a stanza or a verse of a song. Imagine where the trumpet comes in. Imagine where the cymbal comes in. Imagine where there's a, a moment of uh, silence. Okay, So let's read this, uh, this psalm. It's divided into three simple parts. Verses 1 through 4, section 1, or stanza 1, if you want to put it in music language. Verse 1. And that will be David's affirmation. You'll see he's making, he's affirming certain things. Then the second part will be verses 5 through 8. And here he talks about his expectation. Okay? 5 through 8. And then verses 9 through 12, we're going to see his recognition. He recognizes something. So let's look at David's affirmation. Here's what he says. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my 
salvation. Now, I want you to notice something. If you have a translation like mine, you'll notice that the verbs, waits and comes, are in italics. Not all translations show that, but mine does. And whose else does that? The words are in italics, the verbs are in italics. That's a way that the publisher and the translators wanted you to know that those words are really not in the original Hebrew. <coughs> those are the verbs. There are no verbs in this verse. So read it without verbs. And notice what you get. What does it say? My soul. You see that? My soul. For God. Look at this. My salvation. From Him. My soul. For God. My deliverance. My salvation. From Him. Hey, that's really graphic when you see it that way. And then you see the word silently there, which uh, conveys, so and my text reads, uh, truly my soul silently waits for God, and silently conveys the idea of serenity. My soul, serene, quiet, restful, uh, toward God. He's not panicked, which is very interesting. He's quiet. It, uh, he's waiting patiently for God. He just rests in God. It's like a baby resting in the arms of his mother. It's a, just a picture of calm and peace. So David is just saying, my soul for God, my deliverance from God. Does that make sense? And then look what he says. So he's affirming these things. He is my rock, meaning my safety. He is my salvation, meaning my way of escape, my deliverance. These are just statements of fact. He is my defense. He's my fortress, my refuge, my protection. I shall not be greatly moved. That's the bottom line. Because God is his safety, his rock, because God is his salvation, his way of escape, his deliverance. Not talking about salvation, but going to heaven. He's talking about being delivered from his enemies. Because God is his defense. The bottom line, his conclusion, his declaration of faith is, I shall not be greatly moved. Hearkening back, by the way, as many of the Psalms do, to Psalm 1, I shall not be, I shall not be moved like a tree planted by the water. It's just unbelievable. But, you notice the word there is what? What's the adverb? Greatly moved. So, is the enemy going to come and attack him? Are they going to jostle him? Yes, they will jostle him. He'll be uh, tossed by the enemy. They'll do everything they can to, you know, make him unstable. He'll be tossed, but he won't be lost. You know, he'll be moved in a sense, but not greatly moved. He won't be removed from power. David realizes he has enemies, but he has confidence. In God, that He will remain steadfast. They might knock Him back, but they won't knock Him out. And so here He has this is a statement of confidence that He is steadfast in the Lord. And this leads to a question, what we're going to call an interrogation. Look at verse 3. He says, How long will you attack? And He's talking to His enemies now. 
And I can see the choir coming up and maybe even singing that. How long will you attack? How long will you attack? See, that's why I'm saying you need to use a little bit of imagination. I could do that all day long. Make a fool of myself all for 30 minutes. <laughs> but you just need to see that. So here in his song he says, How long will you attack? Amen. And that man is David. <laughs> That's the man who's being attacked. So when you have that statement, how long will you attack a man? That could be the choir saying that, couldn't it? That would really make an impact. And maybe you'd have the you know the drum roll or the cymbals or the trumpets or whatever blowing there. How long will you attract a man? And uh, they'll attack a man as long as they can, but guess what? Because he will not be greatly moved. And this is the thing. He says, I will not be moved. How long will you attack? <laughs> Your attack is futile. Because I'm not going to be moved. Boy, that's a pretty strong statement there. And then look what he says. You shall be slain. At least some of you. That's what it says, isn't it? Oh, no, I said all of you. Look, you shall be slain. All of you. You have no chance. Because my salvation, my rock, my defense is God himself. And then he makes an analogy. You're going to be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. Look, a leaning wall, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> it's going down. Tottering fence, <laughs> one good uh, blow of wind, it's going down. Uh, a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, we saw about this building that collapsed in Philadelphia. I mean, I mean, it was just gone like that. And what happens when it falls? It just shocks everybody. Caught off guard. We thought we built a good building there. Yeah, Twin Towers. <gasps> remember when that happened? Hard to remember, isn't it? But when it happened, you remember what happened? You remember where I was when it happened, what I heard about it. Remember how you were glued to the television? You looked at it over and over and over? How did anything like that fall? Well, structure was damaged and it tottered. And he says, how long? You better just not stop attacking because if you keep attacking, you're just going to fall. And so David has this confidence in God. So that's what he's saying there. And it's very interesting when you see, compared to end of verse 2 with the end of verse 3, in verse 2 he says, I shall not be moved, but at the end of verse 3 he says, you shall be slain like a tottering wall. See, so the difference between David and his enemies is the difference between night and day. Okay? And now we have a switch again. Uh, in person, look what we have in verse third, 4. They. Notice in verse 3, you. How long will you? But in verse 4 it says, they consult. So again, this could be the choir coming in. <laughs> Say, they consult. Say, see how that you need to read how important this sort of look at the words and see that in verse three he talks about you, second person, but in verse four he talks about they, that's third person. Look at this. They consult to cast him down from his high position. That means they are conspiring against King David to dethrone him whoever these people are. They conspire against King David. They delight in lies. They're using duplicity to do it. There's a conspiracy and there's duplicity. Look at this. They bless, at the end of verse 4, with their mouth, 
but they curse inwardly. There is conspiracy, there's duplicity, there's hypocrisy. Uh, when they're around David, they praise him, they flatter him, but that masks the intent, which is to bring him down. But David is like a rock. He's not greatly moved. And so you better watch out when people speak well of you all the time. Because you don't know what they're saying behind your back. And that's always a dangerous thing. Politicians have people who leak things all the time. They want to bring the president down. They want to bring their boss down. They want to bring whoever's in charge down. Oh, in front of them, they say nice things, but their real intent is to harm that person. And David has people around him that want to bring him down. And so then you see Selah in the verse 4, which means, hey, stop and think about this for a few moments. And it might be this time that the trumpet blows. Okay, now we come to the second section. Look at David's expectation. I know that was sort of lame one. David's expectation. Look what he says in verse 5. My soul wait silently for God alone. Sort of a repeat of the first verse. He's talking about how he's just resting in God. Uh, only here the word wait is in the text. And that's why some of the translators threw it back in verse 1. So it would match. So my soul waits silently for the Lord. Uh, meaning, when you wait, that means uh, when you're waiting silently, you're patient. David's not trying to get ahead of the Lord. He's just resting in the Lord. He's in a good place right now, which is very interesting as you read this. Because this is one psalm where you don't have, this is sort of a different psalm. Uh, you don't have David crying out in desperation. He's not fearing. He's not saying, oh, help me, God, I'm in this trouble. You don't help me right You don't see something of this. You sort of sense of David being in a good place. Even though the enemies are still doing the same thing. He is very comfortable uh, where he is in his relationship with God. So he says, my soul waits silently for God, for my expectation is from him. Uh, he expects God to deliver him from the enemy he expects to escape. And then he says in verse 6, he is my rock and my salvation and my defense. That's the refrain in the psalm. This is the chorus in the song. Because you see the same thing up in verse 2, don't you? He is my rock, my salvation, and my defense. You see that in verse 6? He is my rock, my salvation, my defense. I shall not be moved. So that's the refrain or the chorus of this particular song. And maybe the choir sings that. Or maybe everybody in the congregation sings that at once. Everyone joins in. You know. uh, but anyway, these are some of the things that you should be thinking about. Here he says he won't be moved. Before he said he won't greatly be moved. Him, he's rock solid at this point. Now look at verse 7. He is my salvation, my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Uh, again, this is just reiterating that same truth over and over again. He only uses, but he adds one thing. He adds the word glory. And glory means victory in this case. It means, you know what the glory the glory of a game is the glory goes to the person who's victorious. The person who loses doesn't receive any glory. 
You can be a runner-up, but you don't get much glory for that. The glory goes to the victor. So he's saying, God is my victory in this situation. So it's just reiterating, strengthening those things that he said before. And then he gives an exhortation. Look what he says. This is very interesting in verse 8. Trust in him. Now he's not talking. He's talking now to the people. He's talking to his congregation. He's talking to his nation. Here's what he tells them to do. Trust in him. Not sometimes. At all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Oh, wait a second. Up in verse 1, they were against a man. Who is David they're against? But guess who they're against here? They're against the whole kingdom of people. So when they're trying to overthrow David, they're going to try to, you know, lead a coup against the government, and it's going to affect everybody. So David now tells all his people, just trust God in verse 8. Trust Him at all times, you people. Always trusting. All trusting. See? Only trusting. Trust Him in times of prosperity. Trust Him in times of adversity. Trust Him in good times. Trust Him in bad times. All the time. Some of the times that you really need to trust Him are in the good times. When everything's going well and you say, hey, I got it all together. And guess what? Next day. So we need to be trusting Him in the good times. Not trusting in our own devices, and our own strength, our own money. And you're going to see how that comes in in a second. Always be trusting Him. And he says, and I like this next thing, pour out your heart before Him. Uh, empty your soul before Him. The pouring out means leave nothing behind. Uh, give it all to Him. Tell Him all about it. Tell Him about a full surrender. Pour it out like water. So there's nothing left. You get it all over to Him. Spurgeon said, don't pour it out like wine. When you pour up wine, you don't pour everything out. And even when you get to the end and you pour out the last drop of wine, guess what? The aroma is still there. He said, don't pour it out. Spurgeon said, don't pour it out like milk. Because even when you finish pouring out all the milk, guess what? There's a ring around there. There's a residue. Always something left. Spurgeon said, don't pour it out like honey. Because when you pour it out like honey, there's still a taste left. Pour it out like water. That's what David says. He says, pour it out. Your heart before him. God is our refuge. He is our fortress. He is our protector. So, cast your burdens upon God. So, the king says he trusts God in verse 1. And now he tells the people to trust God. And he says, say on. And again, this is a time when the people should reflect. This isn't just about David, this is about us. This is about our welfare. Does that make sense? So that is an exhortation in verse 8. Now look at verse 9. We come to the third stanza of the hymn. And here David had a woman call this recognition. And we call it anything, but I think he makes a recognition. And here's what he recognizes. Look at verse 9. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Now, that is a very poor translation. 
And some of your Bibles have different translations. Literally, it just says, the sons of Adam are like a vapor. Just talking about people. Lowly human beings are like a vapor. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds like James, doesn't it? <laughs> like, like a vapor. Here today, go on the next. And he's saying, hey, men are like a vapor. Your enemies are like a vapor? Guess what? You're like a vapor. If you trust in people, it's going to be a day when they're gone. <laughs> then what are you going to do? Can't call him daddy all the time. So he's describing a recognition that, that we're not, that we're transient. So we're, we're temporary. Men are available. Men of high degree, and these would be people who are privileged, are alive. Oh, it looks like they are privileged. It looks like they have advantages over the ordinary sons of Adam, but that's not true either. They came into the world naked, they'll go out the world naked. And he may be talking about them morally, that uh, they keep their words. If you're trusting somebody in high places, say, hey, help me out. They'll say, sure, but guess what? You never get the call back. Did you ever have that happen? Don't want to trust in humans. Don't want to trust in man, as we say, in a generic way. They are weighed in the scales in verse 9, as humans are. And if you put a human on God's scale, here's what you would find. They're all together. Throw them every one of them. Whole human race. All seven billion of them on God's scale. They're lighter than vapor. <laughs> you can't get much lighter than vapor. <laughs> can't get much lighter than air or breath. But uh, So is that what you want to depend on? Would you rather stand on a rock to protect you or would you rather stand on vapor? You see how he's weaving this comparison between God and human beings. This is not where you want your trust in human beings, whether they're ordinary human beings or they're highfalutin human beings. Now, there's something very interesting about this psalm, and I waited to bring it in at this point. And it's in the Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word that is mentioned six times in this psalm. And it's a word that's usually translated only. Okay? Hebrew word is mentioned six times in the psalm, and usually it's translated only. But in this psalm, it's only translated only four times, and the other two times it's translated a little differently. So let me show you how it's translated. Verse 9, see the word surely? Surely normally is translated only. Okay? Only. Okay? And then in verse 1, see the word truly or verily in verse 1? That's also the Hebrew word that's normally translated only. And if it was translated consistently that way, it would be, my soul only waits on the Lord. My soul is only made for the Lord. That kind of concept. And uh, the other times that you'll see the word in the scripture is verse 2. He only is my rock. You see that? Verse 4. They only consult. Verse 5. My soul waits on God alone. Only. Look at this. Verse 6. He only is my rock. So this has led some people to call this the only psalm. 
And I think that's what it's trying to show. There is an exclusiveness here. You exclusively should trust in God, not in people. Yes, you can have people help you out, but don't. your ultimate trust can't be in people. Your ultimate trust should only be in God. Only in Him do you rest. Only in him, to Him do you pour out your heart. He alone should be the object of our faith. So that's what he says. Surely men are like a vapor. They lie. They're lighter than vapor. Verse 10, look what he says. Do not trust in oppression. Now that's a hard thing. What's he saying here? Do not trust in oppression. Uh, could be don't trust people who oppress others. It could be don't try to put other people down in order to lift yourself up. You know. Uh, but somewhere along there, he's saying, don't trust in the wrong thing. Whatever oppression here means, and that's very difficult to determine, but you get this concept of something that's restricted. Look at this. Nor vainly hope and robbery. Don't uh, say, well, I'm, you know, if I can do this, I manipulate that situation, I can get some ill-gotten gain, then things will be, ah, let me do this, let me do this. Don't trust in that. Don't trust in your own devices. And then look what else he says. If riches increase, and they do, and many people in this room have riches, they've increased over the years. I've certainly had more than I had before. Don't set your heart on them. Nothing wrong with wealth. The problem is, is when that's what you trust. Because you're only to trust the Lord. You say, well, I have money, now I can get out of this situation. I have money, I can, uh, I can bribe. Or I can uh, give a gift to somebody. It doesn't have to be in the form of a typical illegal bribe. But you know, you'll help this person out, a little bit that person out, and that gives you an advantage. And guess what you're doing? You're trusting your wealth to get you ahead. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It's the love of money. It's having your heart and your affections on it. And trusting it to do for you what you should only be trusting God to do. Does that make sense? Because wealth, like people, are vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> it's transient. Uh, you'll have it today and you'll be gone tomorrow and you'll be dead tomorrow and you won't have any money then either. So you won't want to trust something that's here today and gone tomorrow. It's like vapor. <clears throat> now look what we have. He goes on and he says in verse 11, God has spoken once. Twice I have heard this. God has spoken once and he's spoken again. And here's what I've heard. What did you hear, David, when God spoke to you? Spoke once, and I heard him a second time say something. First time, look what he said. Power belongs to God. Look, that's what he's heard the first time. Power belongs to God. So, how much power do I have? I have very limited power, but God, power and authority belongs to God. That's the first truth that he heard. Look at the second truth, verse 12. Also, to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. Look, so here we have power belongs to God. That's truth number one. Number two, mercy belongs to God. Mercy means loving kindness in this context. And it's one of those covenant words where God says, I'm going to enter into an agreement with you, a contract, a covenant. And here's my covenant. If you obey my law and obey me, 
then I will come through for you. If you do not obey me, you're a hypocrite, you say you will, but you don't, it doesn't show, then I will curse you. The blessings and cursings that you find in, in the Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. So, loving kindness is that God comes to your aid. Look, it's one thing for me to come to your aid, if I don't have, but if I don't have the power to help you, guess what? Me coming to your aid doesn't help much. But here's the first truth. God has power. And here's the second truth. God is loving and compassionate toward those who are in the covenant and obey Him. And what does that say about us and to us? That God is for us. And if we're for God, then He comes to our aid. That's a great truth right there. For you, look at this. His mercy belongs, mercy belongs to God. For you render, meaning God, He's speaking to God. God, you render to each one according to his work. So God looks at our life and he looks at our work. And do our work match our talk? We say we believe, but guess what? There's no evidence of it. We say we will take care of the poor because that's part of the covenant, but we don't do it. So he looks at our work and based on that, either he mercy is, comes towards us or he withholds his mercy. And so he judges us according to our work. Those who obey God serve God, are blessed those who are not basically are cursed. So God is for you. And that is seen throughout the psalm by the word my. Look at this. Verse 1. My soul. My salvation. Verse 2. My rock. My salvation. My defense. God is all these. See, God is my salvation. God is for you. That's the great truth. God is for you. Look at verse 5. My soul. My expectation. That's what God is. Look at this. Verse 7. My rock. My salvation. My defense. Look at verse 7. My glory. My strength. See, what a great truth is that if you're in this covenant, if you made this commitment to Christ, and you're part of the new covenant, and if you love Him, you'll what? Obey Him. Then He's for you. He's not against you. And he won't only come to your aid, he's got the power to come through. And so, guess what we're to do? We're to always trust him. We're all to trust him. And we're only to trust him. And the strangest thing is, the human heart, even though we know this, remains divided. <laughs> we're to trust our own devices and our own shenanigans, and oftentimes... We don't trust God the way we should. Now, if knowing this, guess what this means? God shouldn't be the last person you go to when everything else fails. I tried this guy. That guy. Now I'm an island. God, but oh, that's that's what I do. Knowing this truth, God should be the first person. I was thinking of I don't know Luther who wrote this, but where he said, uh, "Prone to wander, Lord." Remember that song? It's the where he says, I'll raise my Ebenezer. Prone to wander, Lord, how I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it from thy courts above. Because, see, we're prone to wander. Instead of only trusting him. Let's take this song to heart and make it our own. Amen?
pray. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks to us. You are our rock. You're my rock. You are our salvation. You are our redemption. You come through and help us, Lord, to turn to you first, not last. Thank you for this word of confidence that David has. And we know that it wasn't just for him. He wrote it to all your people. Help us to take this and apply it to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.